well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is, that's right. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad to be behind the microphone with you once again today. We're going uh, we're gonna to do a little history lesson because we've got this new book out which uh, purports according to uh, NPR, to uncover the racist roots of the Second Amendment. This is something that uh, anti-gun academics like to do about every decade or so. You'll get a book uh, that comes out and talk, oh, man, did you know the Second Amendment? It was only created by uh, racist Americans, and it was designed to uh, uh, you know, protect white Americans from uh, armed slaves, and that's, that's the only reason why we got the right to keep them bare arms. Not actually true at all, but uh, that is one of the common arguments that uh, gun control activists like to make. Uh, in this case, uh, the uh, new book is by a uh, woman named uh, Carol Anderson. It's called The Second, Race in Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And as NPR says, she uh, quote, traces racial distinctions in American treatment of gun ownership back to the founding of this country and the Second Amendment, which states a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, note again the actual construction uh, of the, uh, uh, the the language of the Second Amendment, right? Say, right of the people to keep and bear arms. It's not a right of white property owners or of white male property owners to keep and bear arms. It is a right of the people as described by the Second Amendment itself. But according to Carol Anderson, this was uh, never meant to protect the rights of all law-abiding Americans to keep and bear arms. She says, uh, quote, the language of the amendment was crafted to ensure that slave owners could quickly crush any rebellion or resistance from those who they'd enslaved. And she says that the right to bear arms, presumably granted all citizens, has been repeatedly denied to black people. She says, one of the things I argue throughout this book is that just being black is the threat. And so when you mix that being black as the threat with bearing arms, it's an exponential fear. This isn't an anti-gun or a pro-gun book, she says. It is a book about African-American rights. Well, I would argue that what Anderson is describing are the racist roots of gun control not the racist roots of the Second Amendment, because I don't believe that the uh, Second Amendment uh, was designed solely and specifically so that uh, slave owners could have slave patrols to go after uh, escaped slaves. In fact, all you have to do is look at some of the constitutions, the state-level constitutions that were put in place in states where uh, abolitionists were the ones writing the state constitution. 1776, Pennsylvania. This is what the 1776 constitution of the state of Pennsylvania had to say. Again, this is right as the United States is declaring independence. And the uh, individuals, the, the, the radicals, let's call them what they were, they were radical politicians in Pennsylvania in 1776. They declared in their state constitution that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. And as standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be kept up, and the military should be kept under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. 
1776, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. By uh, 1802, Ohio, this is a decade after uh, the uh, uh, Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights was ratified, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. Indiana, 1816, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. Now, it's true. You can go back and like you look at the, uh, Tennessee, 1796, that the freemen of this state have a right to keep and bear arms for their common defense. Now, again, that is a limiting bit of language there. But Tennessee's resolution, or Tennessee's constitutional language, is really an oddity uh, in terms of limiting that right to freemen. Uh, Michigan, 1835. Every person has the right to bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. Uh, 1842, Rhode Island, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 1851, the people have the right to bear arms for their defense and security. That's from uh, Ohio's state constitution. Oregon, 1857, the people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, but the military shall be kept in strict subordination to the civil power. So you can find northern states that by, you know, 1835 had already banned slavery. And when they're becoming states, you know, they're going from territory to statehood. They are protecting in their own state constitutions the right to keep and bear arms, even though clearly in those states it was not about uh, being able to run slave patrols to capture uh, escaped slaves. Carol Anderson writes that the uh, Second Amendment, quote, was in response to concerns coming out of the Virginia Ratification Convention for the Constitution, led by Patrick Henry and George Mason, that a militia that was controlled solely by the federal government would not be there to protect the slave owners from an enslaved uprising. And James Madison crafted that language in order to mollify the concerns coming out of Virginia and the Anti-Federalists that they would still have full control over their state militias, and those militias were used in order to quell slave revolts. She writes, the Second Amendment really provided the cover the assurances that Patrick Henry and George Mason needed that the militias would not be controlled by the federal government, but that they would be controlled by the states and the beck and call of the states to be able to put down these uprisings. Anderson neglects to mention that one of the uh, delegations, uh, when it came time for a, um, a ratification, uh, that was most vociferous in support of amending the Constitution to specifically protect a right to keep and bear arms was the delegation from New Hampshire. Again, not a state where there were a lot of slaves, certainly not a state where most of the residents uh, were concerned about escaped slaves and slave patrols and things of that nature. In fact, even the New York Times book review uh, took Carol Anderson to task for this assertion, saying she really doesn't have a lot of evidence and she really doesn't back up her argument. Because they, we know, and most historians do know, that it's absolute baloney to say that the Second Amendment was only protected or was only put into the uh, Bill of Rights because uh, Southern slave owners wanted to be able to pursue escaped slaves. Now, Anderson uh, also uh, talks about some of the gun control laws that were put in place after this country was founded. But again, I think she's conflating the Second Amendment, with gun control. 
Take a look. On black people's access to arms after the American Revolution, she says you saw incredible restrictions being put in place about limiting access to arms. And this is across the board for free blacks, and particularly for the enslaved. And with each uprising, the laws become even more strict, even more definitive about who could and could not bear arms. And so free blacks were particularly proscribed. And so we see this, for instance, in Georgia, where Georgia had a law that restricted the carrying of guns. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I do this program each and every day from Farmville, Virginia, right? So Farmville used to be part of a plantation uh, called Bazaar, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. And the owner of that plantation ended up manumitting his slaves in the late 1700s. So from the late 1700s through the Civil War, there was a, um, I don't want to, it wasn't a formal town. There was a community of free blacks called Israel Hill. And there's a great uh, book about this uh, called uh, Israel on the Appomattox that goes into great detail about the laws that governed free blacks in Virginia during that time. And until the Nat Turner slave revolt of 1834, I believe it was, I'm, I'm going by memory here, so I, I apologize if I'm off by a couple of years. The free blacks of Israel Hill could keep and bear arms. Now, Anderson's right. After that slave revolt, the Virginia legislature cracked down and they imposed gun control restrictions, not only on slaves, who again, at that point, were considered people. They were considered property, right? But the free black residents of the state of Virginia were deprived their right to keep and bear arms. Now, again, that's not a pro-Second Amendment move. That's a pro-gun control move. So when Anderson talks about these laws, she's not talking about the racist history of the Second Amendment. She's talking about the racist history of the gun control movement. Now, Anderson also talked about uh, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Uh, specifically, she was asked by NPR about the uh, Black Panthers and how they responded to restrictions on black people's ability to bear arms in the 1960s. And she said uh, what they were dealing with was massive police brutality, just beating on black people, killing black people at will with impunity. And the Panthers decided that they would police the police. Huey P. Newton, who was the founder of the Black Panthers, along with Bobby Seale, they knew the law. They knew what the law said about being able to open carry weapons and the type of weapons you're able to openly carry and how far you had to stand away from the police arresting somebody or interrogating somebody. And the police, she says, didn't like having these aggressive black men and women doing that kind of work of policing the police. And the response was a thing called the Mulford Act. Now, this is a, a specific bill in California that banned the open carrying of firearms. And Anderson points out that the uh, NRA was not opposed to the Mulford Act at the time of its passage in 1964, uh, arguing that, well, that, that, that look, it, it, because this was clearly targeted towards Black Panthers uh, and the NRA didn't oppose this bill, uh, then clearly that means that, uh, again, you know, the NRA was fine with racist gun control laws. Mm. Now, look, I wasn't alive in 1964, much less an NRA member in 1964. So I can't speak to the uh, uh, the organization and why it decided not to oppose the Mulford Act. I obviously would consider that to be a huge mistake. Uh, and today, of course, the NRA and virtually every other Second Amendment organization out there uh, is advocating for the opposite of the Mulford Act. They don't want to ban the open carry of firearms. They're advocating for constitutional carry so that legal gun owners don't need a permission slip from the government in order to exercise their right to bear arms. 
which, by the way, is a very beneficial thing, not only for white gun owners like myself, but for black gun owners. But Anderson doesn't mention another piece of civil rights history in which the NRA was involved. This is a group called the Deacons of Defense. Uh, and this was a group of armed black men uh, before the Black Panthers were uh, even a thing. Uh, 1964, I believe it was, that uh, the Deacons of Defense uh, were founded. And a few years ago, uh, Dave Copel wrote a fantastic piece about this in the NRA's official magazine, America's First Freedom, by the way. He wrote about the Deacons of Defense. And he said, in the South in the 1950s and 60s, civil rights supporters were terrorized and even murdered by groups like the KKK. Many civil rights workers armed themselves for self-protection. During the 1950s, the home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had so many guns that one visitor called it an arsenal. Uh, the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, otherwise known as CORE, began organizing in 1964 in uh, Jonesboro, Louisiana. And one night, the police held a Klan motorcade, Copel writes, through black neighborhoods, throwing Klan flyers and then heading to the local jail to threaten civil rights workers that they had imprisoned. That summer, Copel says, about 20 black army veterans had informally founded a community defense patrol. They named themselves the Deacons for Defense and Justice because most of them were practicing Christians, and they aimed to serve their communities in a Christian manner. They conducted nighttime car patrols of black neighborhoods. They communicated via citizens' band radios and walkie-talkies. Congress of Racial Equality worked very closely with the Deacons of Defense. And uh, Copel says, soon the energy and pride provided by the Deacons had helped make Jonesboro, Louisiana, one of CORE's best organized towns. So on March 8th of 1964, Deacons for Defense and Justice, formally incorporated in Louisiana as a nonprofit organization. Their charter said that the group's purpose was, quote, the defense of civil rights, property rights, and personal rights, and to defend said rights by any and all honorable and legal means to the end that justice may be obtained. Now, what's the NRA connection here? Well, the Deacons of Defense actually joined the NRA. Uh, as Dave Copel writes, the uh, NRA uh, was the authorized public representative of the U.S. Army Civilian Marksmanship Program, and it could sell Army surplus ammunition at discounts to NRA members. So, the deacons of defense joined the NRA. They buy ammunition in bulk. They distribute it to uh, individual members for free. But as Copel says, it's little wonder that the NRA was the deacon's arsenal. For most of the 20th century, the NRA shooting range in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there actually used to be a gun range in Washington, D.C. run by the NRA. And it was one of the few public accommodations in the city that was not racially segregated. Virtually alone among the sporting organizations of the late 19th and early 20th century, the NRA had always remained open to members of all races. Now, this is, look, this is a, a, a bite-sized rebuttal to Anderson's new book. The good news is that there are some book-sized rebuttals to Anderson's book that have been out for a number of years. Uh, and I'm going to recommend two of them to you. These are books that I have on my bookshelf. Well, one of them I've got on my Kindle. The other one, I do need a hard copy of this one, though. Uh, the other one I have on my bookshelf. And I read these books probably every year or so. It's not like I've got like a formal timer. It's like, all right, time to crack open these books again. But I find myself going back to these books 
and reading them and rereading them time and time again because there is so much valuable history contained uh, inside their pages. So the first book, the one that I've got on Kindle, by the way, uh, is called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed by Charles Cobb. Charles Cobb, this is part memoir, part history. Charles Cobb was a civil rights activist in the South in the 1950s and 60s. And he writes very movingly and very personally about how the civil rights movement would not have been possible without individuals exercising their Second Amendment rights. And again, it's, you know, women like Fannie Lou Hamer, who kept a shotgun in the uh, corner of her living room. And when asked why she kept it there, she said, well, because any cracker tries to break into my house, got to get shot. Uh, The other book that I would recommend is by Professor Nicholas Johnson from uh, Fordham University School of Law. It's called Negroes and the Gun, the Black Tradition of Arms in America. And this book doesn't just focus on the 1950s, the 1960s. It actually goes back to the founding of this nation. In fact, it even goes back, I think, a little bit before the founding of this nation. But one of the earliest cases of armed self-defense by black Americans that I can recall from Professor Johnson's book, I think it was like 1802 uh, in the state of Ohio, where you had a, a black husband and wife who were approached by a slave catcher who assumed that they were slaves. Uh, and these individuals, this husband and wife, able to defend themselves with firearms. They weren't charged. They weren't prosecuted. They weren't punished in any way because they were acting in self-defense. Now, Professor Johnson notes that it's never really been a level playing field. And Anderson is right about that. There have been a lot of laws on the books that have made it very difficult for black Americans to exercise their Second Amendment rights. But that's not the fault of the Second Amendment, and that does not implicate the right of the people to keep and bear arms. It implicates those individuals who tried to restrict Americans from having access to their civil rights. And sadly, we've got some of these laws on the books today. In fact, not only do we have these laws on the books today, we have gun control activists advocating for these laws to be put on the books today. The pistol purchase permit law. Oh, gun control activists love pistol purchase permit laws. So in order for you to buy a handgun, they say, you should have to go down to your local law enforcement agency, hat in hand, and ask for permission to purchase a handgun. Before you can go down to a gun shop, go through a background check, buy a gun, you need to go to your local sheriff or your local police chief and say, yeah, please, sir, I'd, I'd really like to exercise my Second Amendment rights. And under a pistol purchase permit law, that law enforcement agency has the power and the authority to say yay or nay based not on your criminal record, but based on what they view as your suitability to own a firearm. In North Carolina, the pistol purchase permit law, according to uh, one researcher at the University of North Carolina School of Law, has made it three times less likely for a black applicant to be approved to buy a gun than a white applicant. This was a study that looked specifically at uh, Wake County, the Raleigh-Durham area. You know, a, a, a fairly educated area. It's part of the research triangle. It's a fairly progressive area. One would think that uh, if gun control laws would be applied in a racially neutral fashion, maybe Raleigh would be the place to do it. 
But that's not what this study found. Study found that today, not in 1921, but in 2021, black applicants, again, three times more likely to be denied permission to go and purchase a handgun. Good news is Republicans in North Carolina mounted an effort to uh, repeal the pistol purchase permit law this year. Um, I doubt that the Democrat governor is going to sign it. And again, you've got gun control activists who are arguing that, well, no, these types of laws need to be put in place all over the, the, the country. These laws will save lives. So the racist roots of gun control, I would argue, haven't disappeared. It's the Second Amendment that I think is being finally um, recognized for what it is. The right of the people, all the people, to keep and bear arms. And yeah, we are knocking a lot of these racist gun control laws off of the books. We are taking steps to ensure that no matter the color of your skin, no matter your socioeconomic background, that your Second Amendment rights are just as available to you as the Second Amendment rights are available to a wealthy white person uh, in the United States. Now, again, I view that as a good thing. I view that as progress, getting rid of some of these racist gun control laws and working to get rid of the rest of them, I think takes us in the right direction. But unfortunately, gun control advocates and their defenders in academia, they don't see it that way. They have to come up with this false narrative of U.S. history, that it's the Second Amendment itself, that it's the right to keep and bear arms itself that is racist, as opposed to the restrictions on the Second Amendment that have deprived some Americans of their civil rights. All right, I, I literally could talk about this subject for hours, but uh, I've got some stories to write. You've probably got some things to do as well. So I just encourage you, again, to uh, check out Charles Combs. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Uh, and uh, Nicholas Johnson's Negroes and the Gun. I think they provide excellent history about some pretty shameful periods of the United States. But they also provide a perspective that I don't think you're going to get from Carol Anderson's book about how gun control not the Second Amendment, but its opposite, gun control, has been used to deprive black Americans and other disfavored Americans from the full flower of their civil rights over our nation's history. All right, today, let's uh, right now, let's get to our uh, armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, our recidivist report. We will start there. Check out this headline from uh, Colleen, Texas, where a, a man has been found guilty and sentenced to probation after shooting a man in the foot, that's, I mean, that's like half the story. It's not really the full story. According to uh, KDHnews.com, uh, 43-year-old Waneel Antoine Warren pleaded guilty back in April to a third-degree felony charge of unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon. That's what he actually was sentenced for. The charges of shooting somebody in the foot, ah, those were dropped completely. And on Tuesday this week, Judge John Gaunt followed a plea agreement in the case and is warned to seven years of probation. Because of two prior felony convictions in Michigan, Warren not allowed to possess a firearm. Well, he wasn't allowed to possess a firearm this time around. But he was in possession of a firearm, and he ended up shooting somebody in the foot. This happened back on March the 2nd. 
Police got a call about a shooting in the city. When officers arrived, they found a man suffering from a gunshot wound to the left foot. He told officers that Warren shot him. Officers then questioned Warren, who said that he went to his uh, car to leave a residence when the man who was shot confronted him. Warren said, I pulled out a gun and I fired a shot to the ground. He was arrested a few days later on March the 5th. Clearly, this was not a, uh, a case of shooting in the ground. If a guy got hit in the foot. But here you have somebody. And again, th- we talk about the problems of the criminal justice system. And it's not just limited to blue states. This is clean Texas, man. This is West Texas. You think if anybody is going to actually, you know, enforce the laws against uh, felons illegally possessing guns and shooting people, it would be, you know, a red state like Texas. But no, even though what Antoine Warren has two prior felony convictions, was in illegal possession of a firearm and shot somebody, he gets away with probation. Seven years probation, but probation nonetheless. Now, today's armed citizen story from uh, Tennessee, where uh, the governor there, Bill Lee, has just signed for the second time around constitutional carry legislation. The first signing was the official signing, but he had a uh, sort of ceremonial signing at the uh, Beretta plant in uh, Tennessee. Uh, not far from the Beretta plant. Well, I mean, not exactly right next door, but uh, not not too far away from the uh, Beretta plant. You've got uh, North Knoxville, where an armed citizen uh, prevented or at least stopped an armed robbery from taking place. This was originally just, you know, reported as a shooting. Uh, and as it turns out, it was a defensive gun use. According to WATE, a Knoxville man who was killed on Tuesday was shot by a resident after demanding money at gunpoint. The robber's been identified as 31-year-old Alexander Skelton. According to Knoxville police, he entered a home in North Knoxville, demanded money, produced a firearm, and that is when a resident shot Skelton. The uh, resident that fired that fatal shot remained on scene, cooperating with the investigation. No charges have been filed. At this point, I would say if if, if that's what the evidence shows, that this guy walked into a home, brandished a gun, said, give me your money, and then was shot, I, I, I'm guessing no charges are going to be filed because that was a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense. But we'll uh, keep our eyes on this story. We'll bring you uh, any new details as they become available. And uh, finally today, our good deed of the day. This is going to sound like a good deed to start with, I promise you, but it does eventually turn into a good deed of the day. Kern Campbell. Uh, was arrested last Friday morning in uh, Lehigh Acres, Florida, after basically abandoning his kids. He was driving drunk, allegedly, crashed his car into a canal, and then took off, leaving his kids inside the car. His kids, five, six years old, five years old, and two years old. And he left them all in the car. Robert Shore was heading to work when he saw the crash. He said he immediately pulled over and ran towards the water, so by the time he got there, two children were getting out of the car. A third girl was struggling to get out. He, so he jumped into the canal, helped that child get to safety, and then watched the father of the children run from the scene. Short says he could tell that the children were scared and cold. He put them in his car. He turned the heat on. He gave them an extra work jacket or two that he had in his vehicle to warm them up before health, uh, help arrived. Short says he has six kids of his own, so his car had plenty of toys from his own kids that helped distract them. Uh, these other three kids who had been abandoned by their father, 
Uh, law enforcement showed up quickly, but uh, Short says he waited at the scene for a few more hours just to make sure that the kids were all right. It's amazing. Deputies with the Lee County Sheriff's Office uh, were at Kern Campbell's home. It's about a mile and a half from the crash site, conducting an investigation for a domestic violence incident that occurred shortly before he ended up crashing his car into the canal. And uh, Campbell showed up there after the crash. He provided a uh, breath test to deputies, which registered just below the legal limit due to the time of the crash. Troopers say it is suspected that Campbell was drunk at the time. A uh, Lehigh Acres fire crew said one child suffered a minor injury in the crash, wasn't taken to the hospital. Campbell was arrested, faces three counts of DUI, two counts of leaving the scene of a crash, three counts of child neglect, three counts of contributing to the delinquency of a minor, also facing charges of battery, as well as resisting an officer without violence. And what is a truly sad situation um, was made a little bit better by the action. Well, I want to say a little bit better, a little less awful uh, by the actions of Robert Short, who saw what happened and didn't just keep driving, but pulled over to the side of the road, jumped into the water, saved one of those kids, and then did what he could to make sure that they weren't quite as terrified as they would have been otherwise. They weren't as cold. That they weren't as wet. That they weren't as scared as they would have otherwise when their own father abandoned them in the waters. So Robert Short, in the right place, at the right time, willing able to do the right thing. But thank you, sir, for your very good deed. And as a father of five, myself, Kern Campbell, you're 31 years old, man. That is uh, time to turn your life around, but you better get to it quick. Because I got to say, drunk, sober, no excuse. No excuse for abandoning your own children that way. So I hope you do get help. I hope you do turn things around. Because your kids deserve a better father than the one that they've got. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. We will be back on Monday with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all around the nation. Uh, but, hey, listen, you've got some weekend reading to do, right? At least I hope you will. Send me your book reviews, by the way. If you uh, if you do pick up a copy of this nonviolent stuff will get you killed and uh, Negroes and the Guns, the right to bear the black tradition of arms in America, I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, both of these books. Again, I think they are... Incredible. I think they are a, a must for every Second Amendment advocates library. Uh, and I uh, hope that you'll get a chance to uh, pick up those books and maybe, you know, peruse a few pages over the weekend. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss one of these programs. You can also become a VIP member of Bearing Arms. All you got to do is go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. You can even use the promo code GUNS to get 25% off of your membership. That'll uh, give you exclusive analysis, commentary, and other pieces that uh, non-subscribers won't be able to access. And uh, you will help us continue doing the mission that we're doing right here, bringing you the latest segment of news and information. We certainly do appreciate your support. Hope you have a great weekend. Until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free.